Brothers and sisters, happy Sunday. Let us pray. Holy and merciful God, be merciful. Send a word. Your children listen. We live in an age where our media apparatus, everything from social media to the television, the newspapers, seem to attempt to be driving our attention away from ourselves and toward others. And by others I mean perhaps a celebrity or a politician or even some other group of people or something like this. And our attention is often divided. I have held fast to Calvinism since the beginning of my faith journey. I don't preach about it a lot because I know that especially here in our beloved community of West Michigan, Calvinism has wrought uh, no small amount of havoc. <laughs> However, when I was in seminary, we were given a choice when we wrote our thesis, our dissertation. We had to choose a systematic theologian somebody whose work we'd go ahead and read cover to cover. We would test our theories, our theologies, against this great theologian. And so many people picked Paul Tillich. And I loved Paul Tillich, and he was a brilliant thinker. But I chose John Calvin. John Calvin's writing is beautiful. His system of thinking is thorough, but most importantly, it is humble. And that's what I wanted. I wanted humility. I was looking for humility. When we read the Gospels, Jesus is often telling us these stories about two individuals or two groups of individuals, or he's comparing the behavior of one person to another. We all know the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? And Jesus closes that parable by saying, which of these three was a neighbor to the man? We say, okay, well, the Samaritan, right? He tells us the story of the ten lepers. Nine, all ten are healed, nine go away, one comes back rejoicing. And today he tells us the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector in the temple. He wants us to imagine which of these individuals do we want to identify ourselves with. John Calvin does the same. And one of the most brilliant moves that Calvin makes is that in his writing, in his systematic theology, he confirms that the only justified position in the face of our salvation is humility. I'll put it another way. If you think you know whether or not you are saved, you're probably not. <laughs> Calvin would look with great suspicion upon anyone who had the temerity to say that they knew they were heaven-bound. He would say that that's likely evidence against them. The only answer to the question that we get asked again and again and again, especially here in Grand Rapids, do you know where you're going when you die, should be, I have no idea, and neither do you. That knowledge is saved alone for God. Now, I'm a universalist. I believe that our God is powerful enough to save every single human being and all of creation. Indeed, I believe that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was to ransom us from death, was to defeat death once and for all. 
But I hold fast to that understanding of Calvin's, to treat with suspicion anyone who thinks they know the mind of God. In today's gospel lesson, we have these two men. They're both praying, but they're praying in very different ways. The Pharisee is praying by comparison. He's saying, I thank you, God, that I'm saved, I'm saved. Or as the old temperance hymn says, I know, I know, I'm S-A-V-E-D, I'm saved. And I'm not like that other guy who obviously isn't saved. And the other prayer that goes up from the lips of the tax collector is simply this, have mercy, have mercy. He assumes nothing. He doesn't compare himself to anyone else. He's only concerned with himself. And he knows his God is merciful. And so he's not afraid or ashamed to ask for forgiveness. What an amazing journey through this world it would be if we were only concerned, only concerned with holding fast to our own values rather than looking out at our brothers and sisters, condemning them or assuming that we know the nature of their relationship with God. We don't. We simply don't. And the other reason that John Calvin's work was so important to me and remains so is because it is predicated on the idea of original sin. Now I know any of you, again, who've grown up in this, the cold heart of the Christian Reformed Church here in America, have probably had original sin used to beat you down or to make you feel bad about yourself or to single you out or to otherwise treat you like you're anything less than an absolute miracle and a beloved child of God. But this is a kind of twisting of the understanding of original sin. In seminary, we realized that the word sin has been so thoroughly abused and messed around with that we often would substitute rather the word brokenness. Brokenness. Original brokenness. Or some of us would say, if we were a little bit more Methodist or Wesleyan in our flavor, original separateness. Original separateness. This means that we're simply all in the same boat together. No one born into this world has any more claim than anyone else on holiness, righteousness, or a deeper, closer, or more perfect relationship with God. And it also means that when Jesus said that he came to save the sinner, he's talking about us. We can't count ourselves out from that situation. Here's something that always bothers me this time of year. This is the time of year when oftentimes we talk about Halloween and the, the media starts to bring Salem back into everyone's minds. The so-called Salem witch trials, right? Well, of course, today if you go to Salem, Massachusetts, they're going to sell you uh, witch-themed paraphernalia. There were no witches in Salem. Not a one. There were Christians. There were only Christians in Salem. And it was Christians who died in Salem from those so-called witch trials. Men and women who died with the Lord's Prayer on their lips. No witches in Salem, but only Christians. And there were two. That was the forebear of my own congregationalist preaching in faith, Cotton Mather. You know, we still study Cotton Mather's preaching in seminary as an example of how we ought to preach. And then some first-year seminarian always has the temerity to say, hey, didn't he kill witches? 
And then you would get a talking to in the hallway from the professor who said he was a sin, uh, he, was a, he was a man. <laughs> he made mistakes. Yes, it was congregationalists. And there were two groups. There was one group that said, them, they, those ones, they're not justified. And there was another's. Those accused who said simply, I am who God created me to be. And I will not confess to that which I haven't done. And God knows my heart. So when we come upon this idea of justification, of who is justified, Jesus seems to want us to first simply focus on ourselves. To not drag others into this. And to never, ever do, as one of my mentors, a Lutheran uh, uh, chaplain at Western Michigan University, Father Bob, used to say, build a ladder to heaven by climbing on the backs of other sinners. I want to read to you some words from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer, many of you know, he was a man, a German, a, a, a Christian, a, a theologian, a thinker. And uh, he was executed by the Nazis uh, for helping shelter Jewish people, and for remaining true to his own values, for deciding that no matter what the church said or no matter what the government said, he would do that which Jesus said. And it cost him his life. He was hung on a cold April morning in Flossenburg. Days, days mere days before the camp was liberated, they hung this great titan of Christian thinking. And he always wrote of his own relationship with God. Now in his book, Our Life Together, he did write about the ways in which his seminarians and him organized themselves and practiced their faith. But the great majority of his work was a reflection on his own humility in the face of God's grace a humility that ended up asking him to be poured out, as Paul says, like a libation, as we just heard from Timothy today. Listen to these words from the cost of discipleship. The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man, which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death, and thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him. Or it may be a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But it is the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ. The death of the old man at his call. No concern with the behavior of others. No self-righteousness at being better somehow, but only this focus on ourselves and our own justification in the face of God's unending grace and mercy. I can think of no other throne 
before which I would want to kneel and ask for mercy than God's. Because God's mercy surpasses human understanding. And so today Jesus says to us again, don't be like those who stand on street corners and decry the sins of others. Focus instead upon yourself and your own relationship with God. And even if you have to do it in Grand Rapids, Michigan, continue to do so. And fear not. Fear not because God's mercy and grace is without bounds. And there in that relationship, indeed in all of that pain, but that pain that's laid bare before God's own mercy, merciful throne, you will find joy. I promise you, you'll find joy. In fact, it's the only place, it's the only place where you can find that great joy that comes with knowing that you are truly and deeply and unconditionally loved. Amen.